Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Debbie Silver, who's Associate Professor of Molecular Genetics and Microbiology at Duke University. Her lab studies embryonic brain development. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your papers, uh, Dynamic MRNA Transport and Local Translation in Radial Glial Progenitors of the Developing Brain. Um, you say in the developing brain, neurons are produced from neural stem cells termed uh, radial glia. Is glia the right, right pronunciation for it? Um, uh, yeah, most people actually refer to it as glia, but yeah. you know, there is no right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so stem cells termed radial glia. Uh, and you say radial glial progenitors span the neuroepithelium extending long basal processes to form N feet, hundreds of micrometers away from the soma. So before we get into this details, uh, Debbie, uh, I want to get some sort of definitions uh, for these things. So N feet uh, is really the end of the neuron. Um, what, what exactly is Sure. So, so the radial glia um, are these just really fascinating, amazing uh, neural precursors, actually. So they're the cells that contain the end feet, and these are the cells that will um, generate neurons. And they were um, kind of historically observed to be um, to to be elongated, hence their name, radial, and and um, to um, bear features similar to glial glial cells, but um, what was subsequently found over, over the years was that they, they have several functions. One is to provide us um, almost a ladder by which new neurons can be, um, make their way up into the brain. Um, and the other is to generate, um, generate neurons. And so these, um, the end feed structures that you were referring to are simply, um, 
uh, the structures at the very end of these radial glial progenitors. Um, there are end feet at both the very um, bottom of, of the cerebral developing cerebral cortex. These are referred to as apical end feet. And then there are end feet at the very top referred to as basal end feet. So, so um, they, they are produced somewhere. I'm just um, trying to abstract it a bit. So they're produced somewhere in the brain and, and do they migrate from their site of production to somewhere else? So the radial glia themselves are, are going to span the cerebral cortex wall. Um, and so basically um, our brains have ventricles that, um, you know, during development, which are quite large. And these ventricles, um, so the apical, you know, one part of the radial glia is going to be at the bottom, one part's going to be at the top. And themselves, um, at the stages that at which they're making neurons, the radial glia do not migrate far. But the neurons that they migrate, uh, that, um, excuse me, the neurons that they produce do migrate um, up um, and they basically go in what's referred to as a radial pattern. So it's as if they're moving from the very top bottom where the ventricle is located um, all yeah. the way up um, into what is referred to as the cortical plate. Um, and you know, this distance is gonna vary depending upon um, the stage of development that you look at as well as the organism. So um, it could be um, several hundred micrometers um, by which they're migrating, or even centimeters in in a human brain. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a fascinating thing to think about. So all of this uh, activity is programmatic, and um, it sort of happens, right? <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's not something that um, that it's you know uh, some external force uh, is doing it right it's all programmatic uh, at the beginning yeah that's right i mean there's a there's this somewhat stereotypical modes by which neurons will make their way into into this um this part of the developing brain um and you know we know um, features that they have, morphological, we know about gene expression um, that is associated with migrating neurons. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, what actually directs it is still kind of um, territory that, that, that um, a, lot of, a lot of scientists are trying to understand. And, and the extent to which this is pre-programmed versus um, whether these these neurons as they're migrating, I think another another perspective is that the neurons as they're migrating are encountering um, different milieu, if you will. So um, they're encountering different cell types that themselves could help to redirect or direct a neuron to its proper location. Well, yeah, so if it doesn't reach um, its intended location, then um, that is going to result in some sort of uh, some sort of disease, right? Um, something that that's going to have long term, uh, long term. Yes, correct. So there are um, a number of neurodevelopmental pathologies um, that have been linked to deficits in the ability of these neurons to to find their right position, their final position. Um, there are disorders um, that are linked to to um, uh, patients having um, um, intellectual disability, um, as well as um, 
abnormal malformations of the brain. Um, and so these can really vary a lot, but neuronal migration um, um, is, is really essential for, for proper development of the brain. And so there are a number of, of um, diseases that are linked to it. Yeah, is this specific to the human brain or this happens in, in any any non non human animal too? Yeah, so that's a great question. In fact, um, uh, my lab, as well as many others, takes advantage of model organisms to study this process. Um, in large part because many of these processes are highly conserved. That is, um, neuronal migration has to occur in human brains as much as it has to occur in, in um, non-human primates or even in mouse models, which is what we heavily study. And what's also quite fascinating is you can even reproduce some of these events um, by just simply um, regenerating a tissue in a dish. So um, there's um, now um, uh, scientists who are taking um, taking cells and using them to make um, uh, mini neurosphere structures that are similar to a, have share features of a developing brain. So there, there um, is a lot of, not only a lot of um, evolutionary conservation, but there's um, um, that, that just tells you how, how important the event is that you're able to re reconstruct it with the tissue. Hmm. And, the, and the human brain obviously is developing for a long time, but early on the development is, is quite dramatic. Um, so the patterns here, uh, I guess two questions, are they, are they sort of measurable, number one, and number two, if they're measurable, uh, could we actually use those patterns to predict some sort of disease state that it might uh, end up in? So ultimately, what, what will end up happening at the um, kind of the end stage of, of this process of neuron production, which is referred to as neurogenesis, um, ultimately what's going to happen is that the neurons are going to find their um, kind of final location, if you will, in the brain. And that that itself is, is actually pretty um, predictive. You can predict that. You can predict um, not only where those neurons are going to reside, but in fact there is um, um, a pretty striking correlation between the position that those neurons ultimately land in and when they were born. Um, and so um, that in, in itself is, is um, pretty predictive. Now, remind me what your second question was. I apologize. Yeah, so, so I was wondering if, if we can sort of observe what's happening in the brain, um, you know, uh, w without any intervention, um, we can just observe, could we actually uh, potentially predict some sort of disease that might occur in the future? Well, I think I, I the short answer would be potentially yes. I, I would say that something, um, you know, there's a lot of events that are happening simultaneously. Um, um, at, so while, so neuron, neuronal migration um, um, deficits have been associated with um, um, a number of disorders. Um, now, in that regard, you might say, well, you can make a prediction. If you, if you knew that there was a neuronal migration defect, maybe it would suggest that this particular uh, um, disorder is more likely. And mo again, I want to caution and say that these, you know, the, these are mainly based on studies that have been done in model, model organisms. Um, right. 
but you know the other the other asp important aspect of this is that a lot of these events are happening simultaneously with other um, processes like neurons being made, um, neurons um, beginning to form connections, um, et cetera. And so, um, you know, it's important to, to find ways that we can, you know, understand cause and effect and, and disentangle different processes. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned, Debbie, if I understand it, uh, understood it correctly, that we can predict where the neurons um, will end up based on the time they were created? So so time meaning during the progression of the brain? That's right. I mean, this is a fascinating um, observation that was made um, many years ago, and it was done using um, a large part by studies that were done in non-human primates, um, as well as um, um, followed up in mice. And what, what, um, what these historical studies did um, really beautifully was to... Um, basically use, use these um, tricks to label cells um, at their birth date and then to be able to follow them over time. And so um, essentially what one could do was to label a cell at one stage of development and then look at this very endpoint of development and see where that cell that was labeled at that early stage landed. And then you could compare it to a cell that in which you labeled its birth at a much later um, time in development, and so you're you're essentially um, providing a um, um, a time uh, a timestamp, if you will, on on the neurons that were made at that time, and ultimately being able to evaluate where they land. And and so that that is a pretty uniform principle um, in mammals. Um, some yeah. of these rules get get a little bit trickier in other species. <laughs> Yeah, so so there is, it sounds like it's it's on a schedule of some sort, and it is sort of sequential. So if if you disrupt, you know, one aspect of it, does it have sort of a domino effect for the for the rest of the schedule? Yeah, that's that's actually a fascinating question. Um, there, um, it's a, it's a, it's um, I can't really answer that with a yes or no because it's a little more complicated. Um, there are um, there is evidence that if you disrupt it, um, um, the you know say the migration of one um, at one specific time, uh, the brain will actually recover and realize that those neurons. Um, have not made their way to the right location, um, and will, um, in some cases, um, there's a, a process that's referred to as um, signaling, by which we think that it, the, the brain may be recognizing the absence of the neurons and actually telling these precursor cells to make more of the neurons that are missing. Um, so that can happen, but there's also... Um, um, evidence that it could have a domino effect where disrupting the, the migration of one neuron will then lead to disruptions at other stages as well. Yeah, so there's some sort of signaling back uh, to the production center, so to speak, uh, if they're not finding them, um, finding them at the location at the right time. So they could sort of restart the process. Yeah, and I think um, you know, and this comes back to um, this is an area that I think is absolutely fascinating, and in, in my research field, um, one that we're interested in, but some really fantastic labs are also working on to try to understand, um, you know, how the brain has these, how the developing brain has these checks and balances to recognize if cells are not in their right place 
or maybe there are cells that are positioned there, but they're not the right types of cells. And so um, um, there, um, the idea then is that there may be signaling potentially back through these radial glia because they have this long, this long structure um, to inform these radial glial progenitors to say, okay, hey, we are missing this type of cell. You need to now change your change your directive and make make the cells that we're missing. Right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. You, you talk about autism in this paper, the autism protein FMRP. Uh -huh. uh, and what's the connection? So this is, um, so the paper that you're describing is a paper in which what we, um, the observation that we made is that there is local um, localized gene expression within these highly elongated uh, radioglial progenitors. And so we, um, we we found that this could happen um, um, that there were actually hundreds of RNAs. So normally, what's thought in a cell is that the RNAs are made in the nucleus or it, um, in the nervous system. We refer to this as a cell body, and um, uh, these RNAs then um, are are primarily functioning um, nearby the nucleus. But what has been discovered um, is that um, in highly polarized cells, they they uh, maintain um, a process whereby they can rapidly um, generate proteins from RNAs um, in a both spatial and temporal um, specific fashion. So it, imagine a cell that is that is really, really elongated. Um, it's much more cost effective for that cell to um, make make the proteins that it needs um, in this distal compartment rather than shuttle the, the components it needs to make that protein and shuttle, shuttle the protein itself um, over far distances. So in our paper, we found that RNAs are um, highly um, localized in these distal compartments. And so we began looking, um, asking, well, what, what could be helping in this, in this, um, in this process of shuttling um, and in this process of, 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 um, um, telling these RNAs to, to um, be made into proteins. And so mm -hmm. to, to tackle this, we started thinking about what, what, what are some factors that we know um, are, have known roles in controlling RNAs. And um, this is where we happened on this autism related gene, um, FMRP. So um, this gene, as you mentioned, is um, heavily mutated um, in um, actually in fragile in fragile X, the mutations are um, um, so it's which is one of the um, uh, so mutations in FMRP will cause fragile X syndrome, which is um, a form of uh, related to autism. And um, FMRP itself is known to associate with RNA. So we found, in fact, that FMRP maybe having this, this um, unappreciated role in um, helping to localize and direct the functions of this, lo of this gene expression um, at the very top of the brain. Hmm. Uh, I remember, uh, Debbie, I, didn't, I don't know the details of it. Something came through the news last week um, about a connection between Parkinson's and this sort of a mechanism. Did you say? I did not but it sounds quite interesting. 
Yeah, it's something to do with, uh, I don't know if it's the right term, sort of elongation and the, and the velocity or, or, or the distance of transmission. Um, and I think the paper is talking about, you know, the connection between that and, and possibly uh, Parkinson's. Well, you know, um, this process that I just described to you, whereby um, a, a cell that's highly elongated um, uses um, um, local gene expression to control its function is one that is really predominant, um, thought to play predominant roles in neurons. And so um, we've been looking at it in the, in the precursors of the neuron, but it also is, is really well known for its role in, in uh, a number of functions of neurons. And so um, in this regard, um, it doesn't surprise me uh, so much that there may be roles for um, um, RNA regulation um, in something like Parkinson's. We know that RNA binding protein Proteins like fMRP are, um, are 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 heavily linked to other neurodegenerative disorders. Right. Yeah. So, so the brain, once it's sort of settled, um, it, it's not that plastic, right? You can't you can't really restart some of these processes once once they're settled. Well, you know, there is evidence that certain parts of the brain um, can um, regenerate neurons as, uh, as they're needed. Um, um, there, there's, um, uh, evidence, evidence that this can happen in the hippocampus, although this has been challenged, um, more recently. Um, um, and so I think there is some debate as to the extent to which this happens in humans. Um, but, you know, there is some plasticity to the brain, um, in terms of, of, of its ability to respond to injury and, and um, not only regenerate neurons, but also redirect cells to the right place. Um, and and there, um, um, there's some really nice work that has been done where people can take, um, take neurons and actually put them into a brain that has been injured. And um, in, in some cases, those neurons are able to um, reform the connections um, that that had been impaired. Right, right. I know that we are not there yet, but do you, do you, uh, if you look forward, do you see possibilities for us to, um, uh, us to do it artificially with artificial neurons when, when there is, you know, something is, is wrong? Well, wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> um, I think, I think there is a lot of amazing research that's being done to understand how, how neurons are generated, to understand how to make neurons, even in a, in a dish, um, and how once you make those neurons, you can tell it to functionally integrate with other neurons through synapses. Um, and so um, as those foundations are kind of um, laid um, through basic science research, I think I think the possibility is potentially there. I mean, obviously, technically speaking, putting a neuron into a developing brain is not anything that we're anywhere near being able to do. Uh, but people have done experiments using model model organisms, and um, there does seem to be a lot of plasticity both to the cells that you put in as well as to the environment that you put them in. 
Mm. And you mentioned, Debbie, the regeneration capabilities are are different for different parts of the brain, right? That there's certain certain places where it's more compared to others. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's gonna it's it's certainly gonna um, vary across across the brain, and that's something that you know we've been limited in. Um, um, our ability to understand um, uh, understand these processes in large part um, uh, to uh, to model systems where we can study it in, say, a mouse brain, or study it in um, um, uh, study it in some non-human primates. Um, and I say we as a field, um, uh, being able to then make these connections and inferences as to what's happening in a developing human brain is a whole nother. Um, Whole other question. Mm. Yeah, but but uh, the the mouse brain actually gives us sufficient information to to, to make some hypotheses as to what the human. So brain there's is doing. a lot we can learn um, from studying studying the mouse. Um, we know that there's a lot of genes that um, and um, a lot of you know, a lot of the genes in the mouse are also. Um, acting um in the same processes in human and vice versa um and so i i would say there's a lot of important information we can glean but um there are processes that um that are going to be different um the most notable for example humans um of course have have folds in our we have folds in our brain and mice have lissencephalic brains they're smooth so if you want to understand the basis for something like um, uh, gyrencephaly, um, which is folding, you know, the folds of the brain, um, um, you studying it in a mouse model may not be the best way. Uh, we, also, we also know that there right. are um, important differences. So the human, humans have, we have, we have certain genes that are produced in humans that are actually not found in the mouse genome at all. Um, and so, um, and this has led to some really um, fascinating evolutionary innovations where, um, where we've acquired potentially new, um, new cell types in the developing human brain that are not present in, in a species like mouse. Mm. If so, if you're interested in the, in the folds, what would be the next best model? Is it, do we, do we have to go to chimps or something like that? Um, so you can actually go further down and there's some really uh, amazing work that has been done um, in a mammal um, called the ferret. Um, um, so I have some um, fantastic colleagues in this field who have been um, using ferrets to better understand um, um, abnormal folds that can form and, and also, you know, to models diseases um, um, that are associated with abnormal gyro, gyral patterns. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, we'll take a quick break, David. When we come back, we'll talk about okay, a sounds great. other things. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.
Debbie, we were talking about the development of the brain, neurons, how they're produced, how they might uh, transport themselves to different parts of the brain and uh, what that implies. Uh, you have another paper entitled Prolonged Mitosis of Neural Progenitors Alter Cell Fate in the Developing Brain. Um, you say embryonic uh, neocortical development depends on balanced production of progenitors and neurons. And the genetic mutations disrupting progenitor mitosis frequently impair neurogenesis. Um, so mitosis is uh, cell division, isn't it? It is. And um, so it's, it, broadly speaking, it's the process whereby one cell can divide into two. Um, now, aficionados will actually refer to this as as um, some people will refer to it as a cycling cell, but we we actually will refer to it as as that actual stage at which a cell is about to um, about to complete its um, production of two new cells. Okay, and so 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 what's the crux of the paper here? So um, uh, before we get into it, so what's the difference between progenitors and neurons? Um, great question. So. Um, the progenitors is, you can think of it as sort of the mother that's going to make the neuron. Um, mm. And so it, um, it, a progenitor here is a, is a more specialized type of stem cell. Um, so the, the, a stem cell is, is any cell that can undergo division to make more of itself. Um, as well as make a, a more specialized cell like a neuron. And so there are uh, populations of these neural precursors in our brain that we refer to as neural stem cells. Okay, so, so prolonged mitosis uh, implies it just taking longer for, for that process to complete? Yeah, that's right. So, so in this paper, what we found is that, um, is that if, if you look at genetic mutations that um, what we discovered was that there were genetic mutations that would basically cause these precursors to, to take a much longer time to divide. And as a result, um, this was associated with, with um, alterations in the number of, in the types of cells that were made. Um, and then we, we, um, wanted to take that one step further and ask, well, if we specifically perturb, perturb this mitosis and using independent methodologies, um, can we uh, recapitulate this, this outcome? And the, the short answer was yes. Hmm. And so you mentioned here sort of a mitotic duration. So we have an expectation of how long this is supposed to take. Yeah. So, um, during development of the brain, these precursors um, undergo a pretty stereotyped um, um, timing in which they will um, uh, basically take a certain amount of time to, un to go through different um, types of changes in the cell cycle and then to complete this process of mitosis. Um, now, this timing of mitosis and this duration can change in a normally developing brain as the brain gets, um, um, go, proceeds through development. So the earliest stages, it's gonna be quicker than at the later stages. Um, and what um, what is, I think, really um, fascinating and was probably underappreciated was 
um, this idea that the duration of mitosis specifically could have an impact on, on whether a neuron is made or not. Um, prior to our study, there was um, some really nice work that had been done um, by Colette Hay and Vilan Huttner's groups. Um, they had shown that other stages of the cell cycle of progenitors can influence their um, uh, the generation of neurons, and they had not looked specifically at this stage of mitosis. So, so the neuron um, generation. Um, that is driven by the mitosis of the, the progenitors. Is that is that duration mechanistic? Meaning, it is it the same all through the development of the brain, or it, it changes as, as time passes? So there is going to be um, some differences in the duration if you look at a younger stage of development versus a stage just just you know towards the very end of of development prior to birth. Um, um, earlier on, it's going to be slightly shorter, um, and then later, it's going to it's going to increase in its length. Um, and you know, this has been something that has been observed for for a long time, but it's 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 not entirely clear why that is the case. Why why the cells change their duration over time? Hmm. And so, presumably, there's some correlation, right, between between those. So. I'm thinking back to our earlier conversation. If we sort of study the progression, could we pick up something that is not working as expected? Yeah, potentially. I think that's one of the take-home messages that um, that we would like to have proposed from our paper. Um, if um, if there is an abnormal um, duration of cell division, it might be telling you um, about problems that can arise. So one of the most there were two two outcomes that we observed that were associated with with this um, lengthening of of cell division or lengthening of mitosis. The first problem was um, the cells had a much higher increased propensity to um, to generate new new cells that failed to survive. So those the new cells that were made um, just really were unhappy. And so as a result, they died. Um, now that of course can lead to a lot of problems in the brain because you have abnormal um, cell death, which can um, result in fewer neurons being made. The second problem that we observed was that they had an increased likelihood of not making enough new, new precursors. And um, as I mentioned earlier, these, these progenitors are a type of stem cell and stem cells by definition need to make a new, make a differentiated cell, but they also need to make more of themselves. And if they're not making enough of themselves over time, um, you're gonna basically run out of the, the, the maternal cell. You're gonna run out of that, that, that neuronal precursor. And so the end result of that is that you won't make enough neurons. Mm. So this is, this is um, we think that this is is important in the context of disease because um, and in particular in the context of a disease called microcephaly. Um, microcephaly is associated um, is defined by um, brains that are significantly smaller in size. Um, and then individuals who exhibit microcephaly can have varying degrees of intellectual disability. Um, and a number of the genes that are um, mutated in microcephaly, actually the vast majority, are associated with mitosis. 
Mm. I remember, uh, Debbie, reading, I think this was in Latin America, there was some sort of, um, some sort of parasite that um, was cells in this, right? Yeah, so um, you're probably thinking about the Zika. Um, There was um, an outbreak um, several years ago. Um, Now I guess it's about uh, four four years ago in Brazil where um, uh, uh, when when pregnant women were infected with, with Zika virus, um, they, there was an, a significant increased likelihood, I think 5% um, of pregnancies, depending on where you look, were resulting in um, babies that were born microcephalic. Um, and so, um, so actually one of the things that we studied in the lab for some time was whether Zika itself was affecting mitosis. Mitosis. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so, so one reason here, uh, if I understand this correctly, is sort of early and programmed cell death, right? Um, and so they don't have a chance to develop into neurons. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. If you, if, if basically you, you make new cells that um, even begin to have the early, um, early features of a neuron, but those cells undergo cell death, the, the end result is that you're going to have fewer cells in a brain. And that's one, one clear explanation for, for microcephaly is abnormal or excessive, excessive cell death. Um, uh, so, and that can happen at various stages of development. Um, there's also microcephalies that can result from um, agenesis or abnormal cell death that happens after birth. Hmm. Yeah, so so I don't know anything about this, Debbie. So I, you know the the size of the brain, um, it, it's it, it just seems weird that some some uh, mechanics like the the Zika virus infection, um, obviously you know it affects the the neuron production, but how does it sort of um, turn back to the size of the brain ultimately? So, so probably the, you know, the best way to think of it is, um, is that, you know, the brain has the potential to be a certain size. And if, if you have um, a genetic mutation, um, or something like a virus that um, disrupts the um, uh, ability to make all of the cells that that brain needed, um, the brain is ultimately going to be um, smaller in size. And something like microcephaly um, can result from not only not um, not only excessive cells dying, but also just the inability to make enough of the cells that are needed. Mm-hmm. And both both of those um, uh, both of those aspects can give rise to, to um, microcephaly. Mm-hmm. Likewise, there's also um, uh, macrocephaly. In fact, macrocephaly has been associated with autism. And that is um, um, the definition of macrocephaly is a larger brain. And there are some um, uh, studies which have um, um, shown that that in some patients, um, some autistic patients, there are actually more neurons made. So it's the reverse of microcephaly. Mm. So, so anytime we see sort of unexpected brain size, 
this is one of the causes. You talk about um, cell death, but not differentiation is P53 dependent. What is P53? Oh, well, P53 is um, actually best known for its role um, in cancer. Um, yeah. And it's... Um, it, it's a it's a master regulator transcription factor that controls a whole number of processes, including the ability of cells to divide and the ability of cells to survive. Mm. So if if you, um, a brain is lacking p53, um, what ends up happening is some of the triggers for cell death are um, missing, mm. and so you could. Um, have, for example, a brain that was um, prone to um, exhibit excessive death of neurons. And if you remove P53, those neurons now won't die. And in fact, in some cases, um, that can be um, in, a, in, a, in a model organism, a way to rescue the microcephaly. Mm. So, so, so P53, um, P53 sort of aids, no, no, it, it impedes death, cell death. Um, so P53 is going to um, be upstream of promoting cell death, actually. Promoting. So, but, but, you know, P53 is, is referred to as a guardian of the cell. It's not going to always be needed. Um, and so, uh, you know, in something like cancer, if you have excessive damage to the cells, like say from UV or damage to the DNA, um, something like P53 actually gets activated and it says we have a problem here. We need to get rid of these cells. Um, and so that's how it how it operates in a in a in a cancer, you know, where it could operate in like a cancer context. And the same actually happens in the developing brain. We know of um, of these systems where if um, there's excessive um, damage that occurs, P53 will get activated. Right, okay. And so, so P53 is sort of good when you have cancer type uh, phenomenon, you need to kill them off. Uh, but if it is in the brain, perhaps in excess quantities, that, that is when, uh, so, so removing P53 from the brain, uh, as you mentioned, reduces the chance of um, issue? So removing P53, which is kind of, you know, it's a very artificial experiment, um, but, you know, we, we and others have, have observed that if, if, um, if you have a brain that's prone to um, have excessive cell death, and as a result, the brains are, are going to be smaller, if you remove P53, P53, in many cases, that can be sufficient to rescue, um, rescue the brain size. Now, I do want to say, um, there's some been some really um, interesting studies that have suggested that this is, uh, and not surprisingly, that this also can create its own problems. So right. if you remove P53, you're now allowing cells that um, we should have gotten, the brain should have disposed of because yeah. they had problems um, to stick around. And that can result a whole nother host of, of problems. Or it could be um, 
could be you know very directly connected to cancer again yes exactly exactly it could predispose um someone to cancer so it's certainly by no means a treatment <laughs> uh but it's it's kind of a way to learn more um about cellular processes and molecular um targets that could be um that could be interrogated for potential um ways of of you know ameliorating something like microcephaly. Hmm. I, I want to touch on one other paper, Debbie. Um, you're talking about pathogenic mutations that impair RNA mm -hmm. and, uh, and related issues in the fetal cortical development. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. We had a, a recent study um, that we, um, we began studying a, a, a gene that regulates RNA, and that's a gene called DDX3X. Um, and we became interested in this gene um, because at the time um, there was evidence that this gene was mutated, um, um, had had a, at least 30, about 36 known mutations in it that caused intellectual disability. And these mutations arose de novo, meaning they were not inherited from mom to, to child, rather at the very earliest stages of development. Um, they arose. And so what we, um, what we decided to do was to really um, use, our, um, use our model systems to better understand how these mutations may be acting on brain development. And what we've and so there's two types of mutations that are associated with this gene. The first, the first type is a mutation that is um, predicted to be uh, a, a loss of function. And what that means is it eliminates um, at least um, um, a good, good for uh, a large fraction of, of the DDX3X gene. The second, the second type of mutation is what's referred to as a missense mutation. And this doesn't necessarily get rid of the, the good gene, but it actually changes the, the function of it um, by just um, modifying um, um, certain features of, of the gene. And so we were able to um, deduce that if, if we replicated that loss of function by eliminating the gene during early development, it um, impaired the brain's ability to make neurons. Um, and then uh, we worked together with a, um, with a clinical collaborator, collaborator, Elliot Shear, who's at UCSF. And he discovered um, through, um, um, through a, as a clinician that there were um, well over a hundred now mutations in this gene that cause intellectual disability. So this tells us that this is a gene that's um, really, really important and there is um, important for brain development and that uh, by, by looking at these individual mute mutations, we can get a better handle on how, how, these, how these different mutations can specifically impair um, neuron production and neuron function. Right, yeah. I mean, every time you think about this, uh, it's a miracle the brain actually works. Yeah, it is true. It, I mean, you know, there's lots of safeguards, in fact, that the brain has for for repair. There's, you know, there's DNA repair mechanisms in place to to ensure that we don't have mutations. 
um, you know, uh, that are replicated. Um, but uh, you're you're absolutely correct. There's a lot of um, there's a we you know we focus a lot on the things that can go wrong, and that's mostly because in you know in science that can give us um, a handle on important processes. Um, but obviously, there's a lot that goes right. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's it's sort of very finely um, balanced, right? Um, it, it's sort of balanced on a knife edge in some ways. That you know, if you take it one way or the other, uh, slightly off base, um, you know, it, it just so many different things could happen to it, right? Uh, and that's why it's it's a miracle. Yep. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> Only a small percentage of the population um, actually has problems or show problems. Well, I, um, there's a great colleague in this field, Chris Walsh, who's been um, doing some really elegant work to better understand to what extent um, our brains actually have mutations. Um, and he's discovering that, you know, all of us are walking around with with various mutations, but many of those mutations are just going to be innocuous. So you can have changes in your DNA that really, in the end, don't cause problems. But you know, if they if they happen to land in an important gene, um, that's where um, you know it can result in diseases. Right, or, or we could get a beneficial mutation, and everybody's IQ goes to yeah. Fall. There you go. That would be that'd be <laughs> great. <laughs> So, um, so, so you have done a lot of work in this area, Debbie, uh, in terms of developing brain. So if you look forward in conclusion, if you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will make, you know, sort of the most impactful um, discovery in this area? Well, I think there's a lot of um, technology that has begun to enable a much um, more comprehensive understanding of brain development. Um, we now have technologies where we can in, um, un, we can investigate human human brain human cells using what are referred to as organoids, where you can make um, a structure that resembles early developing brain, and you can use that to understand important features. But we also have better um, microscopy methods that we can use to understand um, not just um, these features in a tissue, but how they all interconnect with each other. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, there is just amazing genomic technologies that are now allowing us to combine all of these together to understand not only gene expression, but also how gene expression is integrated across, across different cell types. Um, and then the additional layer I would say that I, I'm particularly excited about is, is being able to then ask about, you know, levels of conservation um, between mm -hmm. developing human brains and, and other species, because we can, we can use that information to better understand um, what, you know, what are the features that make us uniquely human, but, you know, also to better gain a sense of, of, of the, um, of what causes diseases. Um, just, just very quickly, uh, I wonder, do we have any data to show if the human brain has changed over time? Uh, and by over time, I mean thousands of years. Um, um, I, 
know of, you know, that there's, we know about the genomes of Neanderthals and their relatives relative to, relative to Homo sapiens. Um, and there are differences in the genomes in terms of how the brains have changed. Um, um, I think that that is an area uh, that is is one that we still don't know enough about. Um, but yeah. you know, it's it's really interesting when you think about it. Come up from a bigger perspective. How have how have changes in our abilities um, influenced our our brains' evolution, our you know technologies, etc. Um, right. Yeah. I know that very tactically, um, our IQs have increased marginally. Um, I, I wondered if you know it's a measurement problem or it's just the work that we do with it um, that sort of you know, sort of forces it to, uh, to to go up the up the stream. Um, but uh, but I think architecturally there hasn't been much of a difference, right? I mean the. I mean, Homo sapiens have been around only for 50,000 years. Uh, I think it's just a short time to really, really have a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. You know, there's, there are, you know, what, what we might refer to as subtle, subtle, but, you know, important differences. But um, the anatomical and, and cellular and even molecular basis for those differences is, is um, I think, one that is going to keep developmental biologists and evolutionary biologists busy for many years to come. <laughs> it's good job security. Yeah, yeah, um, right. You know, this is one of those areas that every time, every time you look at it, you get some new information, uh, but then you find there is so much more <laughs> behind it. And yeah. so, yeah, it, it, it keeps uh, teasing uh, in terms of knowledge, but uh, it seems like we are not getting any closer. Well, I, you know, I, like, as I was highlighting some of these technological developments, like the ability to, to reconstruct human tissue in a dish, the ability to interrogate gene expression, um, many of these can be applied across, um, across different species and even across different species of humans, potentially. Um, to get better, you know, to begin to, you know, understand some of these questions. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Debbie. Thanks so much for spending time. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, and good luck with this. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.